Money FM 89.3, best of the breakfast huddle. Why it matters on Money FM 89.3. Money FM 89.3. Good morning. It's The Breakfast Huddle with Elliot Danker, Barty Jagdish and Ryan Huang. So here's the question of the 21st century. What kind of superpower do you think China will be? Mm, I think it's a big question that not many people have been able to <laughs> yeah. answer. And certainly even when they attempt to answer it, I think there's very little certainty yeah. in those answers. Well, according to U.S. leaders such as former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, China will be a rapacious authoritarian nightmare intent on destroying democracy itself. That's of what course, he said, right? Yeah. Of course, China does not agree. Yeah, well, in conjunction with the Economist Intelligence Unit, or EIU's 75th anniversary this year, EIU has released a new report that examines the most important events of the past two decades. Right, and as well as forward-looking scenarios of events that could reshape the global geopolitical, economic and business landscape for the next two decades. As expected, the report highlights what the future of President Xi Jinping's China would look like and the reshaping of China as a rising power among the most momentous events of the past two decades. Oh, this is going to be an interesting conversation. On the line with us this morning is Tom Rafferty, who is Regional Director, Asia Economist Intelligence. Tom, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Yes, I'm fine um, here in Beijing. How are you doing? Mm, glad to have you on the line, Tom, and to be able to speak with you about this. Before we dive deeper into the China perspective here, let's talk about what else you managed to find uh, to be the most important events of the past two decades that have been encapsulated in this report. Well, I think we, uh, we um, identified a number of key global events over the last decade or two in the report, um, including outside China, of course. A few of the big incidents, of course, we, we cast our mind back to include the impact of the global financial crisis, of course, on the global economy and major geopolitical incidents such as Russia's annexation of, of Crimea um, back in 2014. So the report covers a lot of that territory and it identifies a few things that we think we got right in our analysis and a few things that we got wrong as well. So hopefully we'll find it an interesting read. Tom, so no surprise that China made it to the list uh, with the report highlighting what the future of presidencies China would look like. I mean, from your perspective, since he became president in 2013, what has been presidency's biggest achievement for China so far? Well, I think for, I mean, from his perspective, I think his biggest achievement has been um, um, reinforcing discipline and authority of the ruling party, the Chinese Communist Party. That was his number one goal when he came to power. And um, he he pursued it with um, a great deal of ruthlessness. So, you know, well, there's still ongoing anti-corruption campaign, which has targeted um, tens of thousands of officials across the party, um, has been ongoing since um, 2013, 2014, really. And a much stronger effort on his behalf to enforce um, ideological conformity within the party and impose really tight discipline over its members as well. I think when he came to power, he was very concerned by what he saw as uh, the corruption within the Chinese Communist Party at the time, uh, factionalism uh, between different groups and, and interest, interests within the party. And he saw them as being uh, potential liabilities for the party as it looked to um, extend its uh, governance of China. So for him, I think that's been um, uh, getting control of the party, um, attacking discipline, and running it very in a very tight, centralised manner has been his biggest. I'm sure if you asked him, would be 
seen as his biggest achievement, I think, since he came to power back in 2013. Mm, for sure. But how okay. others see it might be quite different, <laughs> right? Uh, the thing is, China has been making the headlines more and more recently for presidency's common prosperity philosophy that uh, he has been demonstrating in the form of clampdowns on various sectors within China as well. How would you say this is going down with investors? I hear a lot of people saying that, look, now it's no longer about whether or not China is a viable economy and whether you can make money there. It's become all about political ideology and whether or not we want to be a part of that. Yeah, I think suddenly, yeah, we hear it from our clients as well, the, the nervousness about the suddenness of some of the policy announcements over the last 12 months, the apparent lack of sort of um, in-depth programming or advance notice as well has been also been problematic and creates uncertainty for business and investors. Um, I think mean, the challenge with it is the size of the Chinese economy and the, the opportunity it, it still represents, right? So even when we have these things, we, can, we tend to find businesses not necessarily leading the market, but sort of frantically trying to adjust position uh, to affect uh, government policy um, positions. So political risk is, is a given part of investing in China, and it just means in the current environment, I think companies need to pay bigger attention to this than they perhaps would do normally. We have to remember next year, there. next year, later next year is a very important it's party congress. It happens every five years, and this is, a, this is a key moment for party and machines. So... Um, elements of political risk are going to be running around for the next 12 months or so and mm. until that meeting we would say and you wonder you know especially with these policies how on earth the presidency is able to juggle all of them and decide which one to tackle uh, first that continues to be a guessing game I suppose but uh, I'm curious Tom I mean Take, for example, Singapore. We're the type of country that needs to play our cards right with with every superpower. So we get along well with the US. We also get along well with China. Has China, in, in, in your observation, split Asia in any way? I think we're still a little bit um, away from that at the moment. I mean, both um, all countries in Asia are still able to, for example, have um, strong relations as Singapore does with both US and China, as you mentioned. Mm. So hasn't, we haven't got to that sort of uh, Cold War sort of type um, competing economic blocks yet. But I think there are, there are certainly a few risks emerging that it could become more like that if the US and China continue on the path that they're taking at the moment, which is towards more systemic, entrenched competition, right. rivalry across economics, politics, ideology, um, geopolitics, everything really. And uh, certainly you've seen that develop very quickly in just a couple of years, really. Yeah. The cost of mine back to the trade war and yeah. um, it's continued under the Biden presidency as well. So, you know, project forward five, ten years, look at um, where China's economy may be in, in that period of time. And I think you can probably assume that, that um, the relationship is not going to get any better, certainly, mm-hmm. between the US and China. That means, I think, the, the rivalry will become more intense in Asia, um, which is the main will be the main battleground for influence between the two superpowers. And uh, create pressure to choose sides will probably increase over that period of time, I would say. Certainly mm. for thinking long term. Considering the status quo and the trajectory that China is on, uh, what do you think? Which side is the better bet? Uh, yeah, well, I think I'll, 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 well, I'll pass it on to some of the... Make their own judgment on depending on how they view their national interests. But I think yeah. the interesting dimension of it at the moment is both the US and China are indispensable partners in different ways, right? So for 
for China, typically, um, you know, the, the economic relationship, the trade relationship is absolutely vital. Um, it's a major source of um, both imports and also a growing um, destination for exports from many countries in Asia um, as China's economy um, expands. But then on the security side, the U.S. has obviously been the main, uh, has, in, has in place security arrangements, military defense arrangements across the region uh, since the end of the Second World War. And those have served the region incredibly well in terms of um, de- delivering uh, relative prosperity and uh, the opportunity to uh, prioritize economic development. So um, I think it will ultimately depend on uh, which, um, which um, element of that country see as being the most important to their long-term prosperity and security. And hopefully they can blend and fuse the two. But if, if, they, if they feel they can't because of one reason or another, then they, they may feel that they have to lean a bit more to one side than the other. The thing is, with common prosperity very much on the agenda and the clampdown on sectors and industries also making headlines every now and then, uh, some have surmised that all of this would actually make investors, for instance, less likely to ally with China. So I guess the question is, to what extent would all of these uncertainties, a result of common prosperity and clampdowns on industry, actually slow down China's progress towards being the next superpower? I think, I mean, uh, yes, it's interesting to see. I mean, I think in the short, the sort of the regulatory um, clampdown we're seeing in technology at the moment um, is going to have an impact on the way, especially domestic companies um, who have been the main targets for this behave. Um, so their willingness to invest, for example, will be affected. Um, in the long term, I think we're still in a bit of a wait and see moment about how it impacts on sort of economic growth over the long term period of time. Um, certainly, there is an argument that you probably hear on the government side is that they're taking these measures now. You did, you're having to put the economy, financial and technology sectors on a on a safer, less riskier footing going forwards. Certainly, an argument the government makes in terms of the technology clampdown is that um, some of these companies have grown too big and they were uh, depriving opportunities to smaller firms to participate in the sector and to go behaving like monopolies, for example. Now, you take that with a pinch of salt because obviously there's, there's other uh, motivations for some of the actions that we've seen later, but it's, it's an argument that you have to bear in mind. So I'd say, on the long term, I wouldn't write common prosperity off yet. It's not trying to go back to sort of Maoist command-style um, economic management, for example. Um, there's still a lot of uh, vitality and innovation in the economy, but uh, clearly in the short term, there's going to be an impact. In the long term, we're just going to have to wait and see for a little bit. Yep, whatever it is, uh, all eyes will be on China uh, for sure. Uh, we've been speaking with uh, Tom Rafferty, Regional Director, Asia Economist Intelligence Unit. Uh, Tom, appreciate your time this morning. You take care and stay safe, yeah? Yes, okay. Thank you very much for having me. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A W E D I O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.